The Real Investment Show. Uh, not surprising, but I think uh, the big news is China, huh, Danny? They're always. Yep, this is actually one of those, those things that we've been waiting for. You know, interesting to watch to see what China's done with cryptocurrencies here recently, and especially in light of other countries actually really embracing it, like El Salvador. It's something they can't control. The one thing, if we said it here in the United States, the one thing I'd know is this wouldn't really be big news, but I think China does what they say they're going to do. So we're going to see what crackdown means, but I have a feeling by, mo- by Monday you won't see any cryptocurrency. Um, so, so essentially, those for those of you that don't know out, yes. out there, last night China came out and they banned all cryptocurrency. So this is one of the regulatory aspects that we were concerned with with some of these types of investments that you can lose that appeal or we know Uncle Sam and any other federal or, or any any government doesn't like something they can't control. And so we're actually seeing that right now come into fruition. And, you know, honestly, I thought Bitcoin would be off quite a bit more when a large country like that does it. Only yes. down 6% so far today. Yeah, it's not as bad. I mean, 6% is really nothing for Bitcoin. Um, the, the interesting part is the Fed came out and said that they were looking at their own Fed cryptocurrency, which I think ruins the whole spirit as to why you have cryptocurrency. The last thing I want is the... F- Bad enough that the Fed manipulates the stock market and everything else. Why, if I trade cryptocurrencies or believe in them, would I want the Fed cryptocurrency? That would be the last thing that I want. Obviously, most money, people don't realize most money is electronic. I I tell everybody, listen, if you want to be a bank robber, you pick the wrong decade, century to do it. Um, there's not much cash, right? Everything is sort of electronic. Uh, it's just a keystroke for us to, to do whatever we want to do. Uh, but again, I think the Fed coming out with a cryptocurrency, I don't know. It, it seems rather inane for them to do this. I don't think anybody's going to want it. Well, it's, they're, they're going to make payments and things of that nature have to flow through them, which is what we expected longer term. Mm-hmm. And we always knew that there was going to be that regulatory aspect that would potentially hinder this movement. And here we're beginning to see part of it, at least. And look, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it loses that sex appeal to some extent. Um, you know, do people still flock to these additional or outside currencies? And are they going to be available to do so? I mean, I, I say currencies probably pretty loosely there. Obviously, it's a pretty speculative investment, but is that something that's going to stay around? And think about this. Hey, all you virtual land guys out there, they're coming for you. You're going to start paying taxes on that land. Property tax? Yeah, your virtual yeah. Property tax on your virtual land? That would be something. But to I your would. point, Danny, I mean, to, I, again, I think it makes the crypto group uh, really allows them to dig in their heels and say, we don't want any. I mean – we don't want any of your Fed coin. We, we don't want to be part of your space and your world. So I think they'll double down on all the other cryptos just to throw it in the Fed's face. Because, again, if, if the whole spirit of this is that it's not trackable and it, it flies below the radar and, you know, viva la crypto. And that doesn't seem to make sense with you know, Powell and his bureaucrats overwhelming it so if anything i think it makes it creates more of a spirit for people to go into other cryptos uh down the road again we're not saying you should invest in crypto 
<clears throat> we're just saying we know what it is. We know it's not going away. I wrote an article two years ago about Bitcoin that it wasn't going away. I didn't realize there'd be such a fever over it. And we would look at a, a dog and create a coin. We have Lance coin coming out. Uh, when is that coming out? Is that next week? <laughs> that April 1st. Oh, April 1st. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's got a big picture of Lance uh, on it. So, um, and a chart on the back, um, on the back of the coin. And charts we trust on the back of that coin. So, um, you know, again, futures, we had a great day. It seems like we just had a blip, right? It was absolutely a buy the dip. It just was, it just didn't happen right away, but it sure happened. So we're still in this buy the dip stage. What was nice is as we saw the pullback here at RIA, we added a bit more exposure on the weekday of weakness, right? We added a little bit more exposure early yesterday. Um, so we were waiting for what we try to wait for is since the market is in a is in an uptrend, it's I, I tell everybody it's like uh, it's like your oven on Thanksgiving, right? You don't want to touch it when it's on for eight hours, but I don't need it to go cold before I'm interested in I can touch it. In other words, we got to have some of these investments cool off just a bit, and then add to them, and that's that's what we did. Well, and, and this last week did create a little bit of opportunity. If you looked at certain yes. pockets of the market, there were some that were beat up a little bit more in mm -hmm. some areas that we actually really like. Yes. And so, you know, these these types of events do provide that opportunity should you have cash on hand or if you've been, you know, we talk a lot about Lance and I did Wednesday, um, kind of trimming the garden, taking profits, understanding, you know, kind of markets in general. Because we do get lots of questions on how do you invest in this late stage market? What do you do? How do you take advantage of opportunities? And, you know, a lot of it is about that capital preservation aspect for us, but also being able to capitalize on different events. Now, would we probably have preferred to see uh, uh, maybe a little bit more substantial pullback? Uh, I mean, that's always tough, right? Because you always want – if we could – we had a choice. We'd always want the markets just to go higher, higher, higher. But that does present you that opportunity to put some of these funds to work and take advantage of lower prices. Well, we were prepared, as Lance has been talking about for a while, we've been talking about that we were expecting a pullback, at least a 5 to 10% pullback. We had built up more cash on, in anticipation and looking for an opportunity to add cash into the market. But yeah, I think as long as the trend would have stayed in, relatively in place, we would have added more cash. It's funny, Danny, right? 5% uh, pullback, which is just you know the price of admission to the market and – you watch you watch mainstream media and you see words like crash and derail and all these other words, these bombastic kind of words that, again, is just the normal nature of the beast for the market. That is the price of admission. We have forgotten. We've gotten into this uh, market for free, so to speak, into the uh, arcade. But sometimes you got to understand there is risk out there. I think let, I think next year, when it comes to a risk perspective, I think that's where we're going to see more of uh, more of uh, the volatility that we're not seeing this year. But that's just my magic eight ball. When we get back, we want to talk about Medicare open enrollment and all the boring stuff Lance doesn't like, but we're going to make it exciting. I promise. Here on the Real Investment Show, Financial Fitness Friday. Stay tuned.
obviously with the turmoil around taxes and all the different changes, and we don't know what's what's exactly solidified yet, whether it's increasing corporate taxes, increasing the highest marginal rate for people making certain amounts of money. Um, but we do know that there is still an emphasis on making sure you have the right retirement plan for your business. It might be even more important in the face of what's coming. Yeah, Thursday, we're going to have our lunch and learn with our retirement plan consultant, Tom Allen. We're going to be discussing as a business owner, what are some of the things you can do to keep more money in your pocket? And I think this is going to become ever so more important as we're seeing the changes within the tax code. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of going back and forth at the moment. Um, still a lot of things up in the air. But one thing we do know is it's going to be extremely important to make sure that you keep more money in your pocket. You keep it out of Uncle Sam's hands. And we've got some great ways for you to do so. We're also going to talk if you're just an employee and you you, you have a 401k, we're getting that open enrollment se season. You know, what are some of the things I think you'll be able to take something away from this as well? What are some of the things you can do to do the exact same thing? Make sure that you're not paying too much in taxes. You know, we're a big favor. We're in big, big fans of the, the Roth after tax, but we're also want to look at the big picture, depending on income and all the other things. We want to make sure that you guys can keep money in your pocket as well. And so uh, we're going to be talking about all those things and more. Once we get a little bit better, more clarity on this tax code, we're going to really be able to help with some distribution planning, Roth conversions, um, all of those things that I think are going to be extremely important. Uh, we're probably not going to talk about too much about that here this next week, but we will be talking about that here in the near future as well. So go to realinvestmentadvice.com, go sign up right there. We'd love to have you out. And, um, you know, it's going to be a good event. Tom always has a, a lot of things prepared that are very uh insightful and, and certainly timely. He does. He does. You will learn something. You have a small business. You want to make sure you re retain your best people. And we know how difficult that is to find good people. Um, this is really the uh, lunch and learn and webinar for you to attend. Um, it really ticks me off about the whole Roth conversion situation where Peter Thiel just pretty much followed current tax rules and did a Roth conversion. Danny and I have been talking about doing Roth conversions for three years, and they became real popular all of a sudden. Um, they'll still be there, but they're going to look to cap it at $400,000 of adjusted gross income filing single, $450,000 married filing jointly. They'll say, hey, you don't allow, we won't allow you to do this. Frankly, I don't understand this, Danny. Why cap it when you want to do taxes, when you want tax money now? Like, why are you spiting the J.G. Wentworth effect here, right? Uh, most people will still be able to do Roth conversions. I also don't like the backdoor Roth conversion, the, the fact that that might disappear, where people can open the IRA, uh, a non-deductible IRA, and then immediately convert it to Roth. It's, I don't think a lot of the wealthiest people do these things. But Peter Thiel decides that does something legal, and all of a sudden that becomes a highlight to do this for Roth conversions. And also, if you have more than, was it, $10 million or more in your traditional IRA, they want to accelerate distributions. In other words, you, all this time the government's been telling you to put money away in tax-deferred accounts. Say you're a really great investor. Say you receive stock from your company, and now— we don't want to tax it. Now we're saying how much you can have in these pre-tax 
accounts. So we want to make sure, and Danny, what we're going to do for everybody is soon as all of this is crystallized and out there, we're going to have uh, one of those, we'll do one of our lunch and learns or candid coffees, and we're going to go through each one of these steps so you absolutely understand what's coming. But we don't know right now. What we do know, this is where Lance has to grab his coffee and keep his eyelids propped open. Medicare open enrollment begins on October 15th. It runs through December 7th. But I want to talk a little about the state of healthcare premiums overall, because due to the lingering effects of COVID, we have to look at what is the outlook for ACA healthcare premium inflation. It's still a bit fuzzy, right? So insurers have to submit filings to the Fed to the feds by October 15th for the upcoming year. So on premium inflation, Danny, I would think it's going to range between the current CPI and what the higher end of the Atlanta Fed's flexible cut of CPI is, which is about 6.3%. And that flexible cut, if you haven't gone to the Atlanta Fed and checked out their inflation data, it is very impressive. Mike goes, Michael goes there quite a bit. Uh, the flexible cut is based on a weighted basket of items that change prices frequently. Um, why I'm bringing up the ACA is we have early retirees, right, Danny? Those under 65. They need this health care bridge coverage to Medicare. And the sticker shock for that of the open marketplace can shock people right back into work until Medicare uh, comes into play. So at REA, we recommend actually that most clients remain employed until they're eligible for initial or their special Medicare enrollment period, right? Um, unless you can get, you know, coverage through a spouse. And there are people that do have retirement health care uh, benefits. So Medicare open enrollment, Danny, it's important, right? Part D, that's your prescription drug coverage has averaged an annual growth rate. This is out of the Medicare Annual Report Board of Trustees for the, this year. 3.2% over the last five years for the annual growth rate compared to 2.8%. The trustees project that cost growth over the next five years, Danny, will average 6.1% for Part D. The Senior Citizens League, if you haven't signed up for their reports, even if you're not a senior citizen, they have a lot of great intelligence and studies about Medicare, which might not only help you, it might help somebody you know. Um, did you realize Medicare recipients frequently overpay for 12 of the most commonly prescribed drugs? The difference in cost can be hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars. So if you're not using open enrollment, to at least review your plan, you could be leaving a lot of money on the table, right? Danny's just just doing that. The people on the radio can't hear you nod. I, he's nodding, like Richard was still talking. I was listening. No, no, no. But um, I may, maybe, maybe I was with Lance. Maybe I nodded off a bit too. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet you did, because this stuff is where it becomes exciting. Is people who do their homework. And they've trimmed maybe two to five hundred bucks, two hundred to five hundred bucks off their their budget. I just had somebody do that because I forced him. Oh, I just I just let it go and I I don't really look. 
And he looked and said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to save 250 bucks on this drug and another 250 bucks a month a year on this uh, drug. In other words, 500 bucks a year back in his pocket for spending 20 minutes on Medicare.gov, Danny. Oh, and I think it's truly important for people to understand and realize that, you know, we're looking at a holistic big picture here. And this is why it's so important as a financial advisor, a wealth manager. It's not just about, you know, making gains in the market. It's about preserving funds, not just from the market, but from additional costs and expenses. And this open enrollment period is certainly a good time for people to try to put that into play and save those dollars. Um, you know, the more you have in your pocket, the longer it's going to go. And so every little bit counts and helps. And that's why open enrollment is huge. I mean, how much money is typically left on the table for people who aren't changing? It's not in the hundreds of bucks, Rich. It's in the thousands. Yes, it absolutely is. So talk a little bit about, Danny, what happens during open enrollment? What can you do during open enrollment? Well, so, I mean, it depends, right? There's two different open enrollments that we're looking at. So you have an open enrollment for the ACA, which is going to be for people who are typically under 65, then you have your Medicare um, open enrollment, which runs from um, all the way to what, December, October 15th to December 7th. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. That date typically doesn't change a whole lot. That's usually pretty similar each year, but it gives you an opportunity to go and change those policies. So if you need to go out, you're, you have a Medigap policy, you want to shop it, um, make a change to something different because of needs of change, things of that nature, um, you want to do that. Now, even if you're not making a major change, you likely want to shop this anyways because there may be a similar plan um, that is cheaper. There may be uh, your plan has changed. It doesn't cover things that it once did. And so it's really important to make sure that you're doing your homework here because like you said, Rich, I mean, you you find that there's times when you can save a little bit um, here and there and it all adds up. And so that's why it's important. You know, you, you hit on D a little bit, which is a prescription drug coverage. And a lot of people spend way too much money on that as well because mm-hmm. – uh, the policies change, especially if you're on a specialized drug. That's where we can see some some issues surrounding that. Medicare has done a little bit better job as far as um, letting people know when there's major changes within plans or at least requiring rules that, that will let people know that. But, you know, how many times do you get something in your inbox or a piece of mail that looks like it's some uh, it's junk and you throw it out? So I, oh. I have a feeling that happens a lot with this. I think a lot of older uh, Americans, they get the annual notice of change that outlines changes in cost coverage and services and they don't look um according to a report by eHealth, only 10 percent of those in medicare in medicare are enrolled in plans that cover the prescriptions at the lowest possible price do your homework we get back we got a lot of i think we're going to move into a more exciting topic when we get back just for you here just for you here on the real investment show I wonder if Raquel Welch needs long-term care. I saw a picture of her yesterday, Brent. The first photo of her in two years. She's 81 years old. Mm -hmm. Raquel Welch is Mm -hmm. 81 years old? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got this picture of Raquel Welch. Yes. And then you see her at 81. And she still looks pretty good for 81 years old. Right. But, man, I just realized we all get old. We all get old. Um, dust to dust, buddy. I'll tell you, it's aging is not for the weak. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. So we're not going to talk about long-term care today, just so you all know. All right? 
Next next week, I'm going to have a whole segment on which adult diapers to buy. See how many of you tune in. So what happens with the estate tax exemption, Danny? What we have to be concerned about is right now, it's about $11.7 million per individual. But we know the estate tax is a big target. Politicians uh, salivating upon your death all over your gravestone because they want your money. What happens when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act sunsets, Danny, in 2025? What happens? Disappears. I mean, we, we revert back to the old numbers. Um, but, Rich, we may not have that long. I, we may I, I change prior to that. I think after this big tax move, even though this, I don't know if this is, well, this was sort of part of it. This is going to be a very important topic, these exemptions and trusts used to maximize them are going to be big topics going forward. There seems to be this fetish for taxing people when they die. It's like a passion to do it. Um, so trust planning to some degree is going to be very important. Overall, if you have a trust, say you have some form of an irrevocable trust or a testamentary trust that forms out of your will, one of the ultimate goals, besides the fact that you're trying to preserve exemptions, say, for each spouse, but is to lay a marker for others in your life. Sort of speak beyond the grave. I'm trying to get my Halloween voice ready. Um, where you want the money to stay within the family lineage, right? I talked to someone the other day, and I've been fortunate enough to work with this couple probably about 26 years. So now their children were married. One child, they have, they have a trust. One spouse had passed. We have the trust that was spawned. The trust in the name of the daughter, um, to protect, and we had we had talked about this twenty five years, twenty three years ago, actually, to do these trusts. So now that the daughter is getting divorced, and dad calls me and goes, "Hey, what happens with her trust?" I said, "Nothing. It's not part of the. It's not part of the divorce proceedings. It is protected, right? Um, so there is a way to make sure you're preserving assets." Uh, when you look at some form of trust planning. Now, Danny, what do you think when you looked at this, when you look at these, what's very um, popular are the spousal lifetime access trusts or SLAT, which is a gift from one spouse to an irrevocable trust for the benefit of the other spouse. Right. It's almost like those old bypass trusts. Remember when we when the exemptions were like a million bucks and you always right. tried to find a way? Because think about this way. If if you look at your total net worth, it's probably easier to get to a million bucks, especially if you have life insurance. People do not realize that life insurance is part of your estate. Right. Oh, well, that's life insurance. That doesn't count. Yes, it does. That's why people set up irrevocable life insurance trusts. But I can have this, you know, I can get to a million bucks really fast. So what we were doing a lot in the 90s, early 2000s was say, hey, you have to make sure that you don't blow your million dollar exemption. Because if, if I'm married, right, and I leave everything to my spouse, 
then I pretty much lost my exemption and I'm loading up the second estate, right? So the, the trust planning aspect was really much more active when exemptions were more reasonable or, well, more re less reasonable in the fact that you'd have to pay more tax, but lower. I have a feeling trust planning over the for tax purposes, not just legacy purposes, is going to be extremely important. But I think people get intimidated, Danny. I think they go, oh, my gosh, how much work is that uh, to set up trusts and so forth? How expensive is it? I mean, these are good questions. It does take some effort. But if you're looking down the road for not only your spouse, but for a legacy option, then you know, something like a spousal um, lifetime trust, right, funded by gifts from both spouses. But what happens is it's excluded from the estate when the second party dies. Um, and the beneficiary spouse can receive benefits. So I know a lot of people that are setting up spousal lifetime access trust where the surviving spouse can have access to the money anytime the surviving spouse, but when that surviving spouse passes, it doesn't get included into the estate. Now, there are going to be limits on gifts, on gifts through this new tax initiative, right, Danny? There are, but, but Rich, I think it's really important. So I'm starting to get a lot of emails from um, estate planners that we work with, and there's a window of opportunity here where you could potentially go ahead and do something. So, you know, if you've been on the fence waiting and, and trying to see, okay, let's see how this plays out, that may not be the best move. It may be better to go ahead and do some of these things because you would likely be grandfathered in under the old law, which would give you a yes. lot more wiggle room depending yes. on your net worth and your assets. So if there were a call to action and there were a time to not procrastinate, this is it. I mean, you need to get out there and you need to get these things done ASAP. Um, I know it's, you know, the, the biggest things you hit, you, you discuss those, Rich. People don't like to, uh, you know, it's one, it's overwhelming. Yes. Um, there's some moving parts, just like a financial plan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to make some decisions and you have to be very comfortable with them probably on a much quicker manner. And then, you know, you, you've you got to worry about all these additional things. And, you know, one of the other aspects we hear quite a bit is the cost. You know, it's, oh, it's too expensive. Well, let me tell you, if you don't do this and these laws change and you pass, it could be much, much more costly down the road. And, you know, the things that your family will have to go through just to try to protect assets is going to be very difficult. And you may not have much wiggle room. So um, I, I would I agree. do it sooner rather than later. At least understand the framework of the Correct. kinds of trusts you might need, depending on the size of your estate and the legacy intent that you have for these assets. But to Danny's point, it might be too late, depending upon when the, these initiatives are implemented uh, overall. What you have to keep in mind, even if nothing happens with this and you procrastinate, keep in mind, down the road, these estate taxes have a relent these states have relentless targets on them. <clears throat> and it's not that difficult to build up an estate total net worth that's worth a million bucks. Even if it's say not on the first death of the first spouse, but the second. Right? So to your point, Danny, the trust planning, even if this doesn't happen with this current bill, it is something that will continue 
to be on the radar. It doesn't like fall off the radar. You notice the estate tax issue never really, rarely falls off. It really doesn't. It stays within the perimeter and is always beeping on that radar screen. It's just when it gets moving, moves closer in. So it, I think it's inevitable that we see dramatic cuts to the exemption, changes to how trusts operate, and you're going to want to at least lay out the framework. So how does somebody do this, Danny? So think about it. Okay, you guys have convinced me. I, I think I need some form of trust planning, right? What would be my next step? You know, you could you could go about this a couple of ways. One, you could contact your financial advisor. They should typically work with a number of different estate planners who can give you a little bit of direction. Mm -hmm. um, or two, you know, find it find it a good estate planner in your area who focuses and has a specialization in this specific spot. You know, a lot of times we get and look. There's lots of really good attorneys out there that do a little bit of everything. Um, this is an area though that I typically want to deal with somebody who who does this on a day in and day out basis. They're very comfortable with this. They can give you direction quickly and execute on it. Um, yes. And, you know, so let's just say this has sparked your attention, but there's a lot of you out there that have probably visited with an estate planner who said, you don't need one of these. You don't need to worry about these, these types of things right now. Well, guess what? If this, these laws change and they read the revert back to previous numbers, which, you know, you go from 11.7 million per person to 5.49, or they changed them, and there's been talks of even down at one million. This would be an easy thing to go out, an easier thing for them to change because they're saying they're gonna tax the rich. Well, guess what? That could be you. And you may not feel it, but um, yeah, these you are might not you think you're so rich, right? But, that's right. But according to the estate planning components of what we're talking about, you very well may be. We're gonna continue this talk when we come back here on The Real Investment Show. Stay tuned. So the one thing I want to help you understand is when people think trusts, Danny, the one thing that they go for is revocable living trust. And there are pros and cons to revocable living trusts. But people think that somewhere along the line, revocable living trusts save estate tax. What is your thought on revocable living trusts? Do have benefits? Depending on how private you want to be with your estate, right? Revocable living trusts do have your social security number. They are an extension of you. They will allow you to share your, your, your wishes, who would be successor, how this money would maybe spawn other trusts. <clears throat> but there is no real estate tax saving in a revocable trust. It's you wrapped in a legal blanket. The money is not irrevocable, right? Revocable means I can change it at any time. But there are a lot of people, say in high tax states, high probate tax states, that say, you know, I don't want to pay for this probate cost, 1% or 2% of my estate. Some states, 4 or 5%. Pro this allows assets to pass without it. If I, if I have a will instead of, of a revocable living trust, well, then everybody can read my will. It gets filed, and it's out there. If I want complete privacy... In my estate planning, I would look to the revocable living trust. But what's the pain in the neck with it? The pain in the neck is you got to, have to re register everything in the name of the trust. Sure, there'll be a pour over will that would take 
take care of some things that you don't register in the name of the trust. But I think, I think people have this overinflated view, Danny, of what revocable living trusts are really there to do. Yeah, I think that anytime there's any incidents of ownership, that's going to that's going to be a problem, especially from the estate planning perspective. And so really and truly to avoid and get around these things, especially if we're trying to shelter funds from potential later taxes and keep them in the hands of loved ones, you're going to have to actually give up those incidents of ownership, which many people have a hard time doing, Why? which is why you see the revocable living trust typically being more popular than those irrevocable living trusts. Right, because they don't feel like they have that string attached to pull it back. <clears throat> but that's where you get to save on the estate tax. If your goal is privacy, heck, I, I mean, I have clients that don't have to worry about estate tax exemptions, but they have revocable living trusts, and the reason they've done it is to avoid probate. And they, and they can clearly lay out what they want to happen, and they can in the will, but it can't be contested. It is what it is, um, and it's very clear. I don't have to go through the probate costs. And again, every state's different um, with probate costs. I understand why people in my hometown in New York do these because of what the estate tax, um, the, the probate tax is, or probate costs are, you know, exorbitant. So I, don't, I, I, I can understand it more in certain states. Um, than we have now. <clears throat> the irrevocable trusts, which means I don't have that control, like a spousal lifetime access trust, they may be more painful to you because you're gifting assets into it and you hope within the trust those assets are going to appreciate over time. But I don't really have the ability to touch those assets. Those are the ones that give you the firepower to maximize your exemptions. Right now, we don't worry too much about exemptions at 11 million. Heck, we may not even worry about them at 5 million because that's where they're going to revert. They're going to revert back to those exemptions. So if I'm married, I've got 10 million bucks. And most likely, most households are not going to have to worry. But my overall thought, Danny, is within 10 years, this exemption is at a million or possibly less. I, I, I just feel it. I, so if I want to be prepared, the best advice like you just gave was lay it out now. Do we need an irrevocable trust? How can we lay these out? How will this money go on? There are so many different types of trusts. Dynasty trusts that last for lifetimes of families, Right. Maybe you uh, have a charitable intent. Charitable remainder trusts, charitable annuity trusts are becoming very popular to collect tax-free income and also provide the estate money to the charity of your choice. But they all have rules. They all have tax filings. They all cost. So you got to weigh it out. You got to see the impact on your legacy. So a financial plan that lays out, here's the impact. If I, in, if I put this trust in play at the death of the first or second spouse, what happens to my overall growth in my assets? And you can model for different estate tax exemptions. But I, I agree with you, Danny. I would be doing this sooner 
rather than later. This is something that needs to be addressed quickly. You know, there's lots of other issues about them, you know, looking at retroactively, um, you know, making some of these laws laws change. I know that's been a big kind of uh, item with them going back and forth on the tax bill. And like you said, this may not happen right now, but this will happen in the future at some point, especially with this current sentiment of taxing the rich, of getting their hands on more more money. And government has a spending problem. I mean, we're looking at what they're doing right now. They need to get done by September 30th um, just to just to be able to continue to spend money. Um, you know, I think we're, we're up against the debt ceiling. We're up against many things. And unfortunately, this is almost like a year to year thing. It's it's uh, we're in an echo chamber here because they're never going to balance the budget. They're never going to come out with the budget. And so who do they come to? They're going to come to you because they continue to spend your money and they need more of it. So I would be in, in the business of protecting as much of that as you can. And I do so quickly. Yeah, so there's like these dynasty trusts. So they're for long-term wealth planning. And um, you get protections against creditors uh, and divorce. You get um, the ability to uh, um, really lay out for a century what you want done. Um, so the in Texas, for example, there was this long-term standing law that placed strict limits on the actual length of time that the dynasty trust could last, but there was a newly enacted provision of the law. So now trusts in Texas, for example, to last 300 years. So you can have, you know, you want to talk beyond the grave. You got it. But you need to understand the implications. And do you really have the net worth to make it worthwhile? And again, a lot of people don't realize, and I talk I mean, I don't know how many conversations I have in a month with people that go, well, you know, my state's worth this. Do you have a life insurance policy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got a $2 million policy. Um, okay. But that, that doesn't count because that goes to my kids. Well, it doesn't count taxable to them, but it does load up your estate. So it's not realized the whole life insurance because I'm passing away and it's going somewhere else. I really didn't use it. People don't realize how that works as part of your estate. And there are trusts. Um, they are complicated, but there are trusts that allow you to place insurance into these so that you can um, minimize the impact of it on your estate. So the trust creation concept, you talk to your financial advisor, get a layout, right? Your financial advisor is not an estate planning attorney, generally speaking. Right. They give you like us. Danny and I can give you general guidance, practical steps, things to consider to actually create the documents. you got to go to a board certified estate planner. The one thing, Danny, that I've noticed, too, is people go, well, I'm just going to go to this attorney who doesn't really specialize in estate tax. And, and maybe that attorney can help you. But I want someone that that is their area of specialty, especially with all the turmoil going on with this right now. I want someone that if there is a change and I've already done my trust planning, that gets in touch with me and goes, hey, Rich, we got we to gotta revo- gotta revisit this because of this. Um, I don't want a general practitioner, generally speaking. I want someone who is board certified 
to go ahead and put this plan together. Sure, you know, you can get online and create your will through LegalZoom. We talked about weeks ago, holographic wills with Tanya Roberts misspelling. I'm so, I'm so disappointed she doesn't spell well. Um, you know, just laying out what she wants. I could do that. But this stuff, mm, we need a good, qualified estate planning attorney to help. But listen, it's the weekend coming. You're going to live. You don't have to worry about it. Right? I'll die tomorrow. Or the new James Bond movie. No time to die. I got stuff to do. We hope you enjoyed the information today. Stay tuned next week. Lance on Monday. Have a great weekend. We love you being with us. Take care. Money, money, money. Must be funny in a rich last world. Money, money, money. Always Sunday in a rich last world. While the big time to tell. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.